Forletta Investigates. Welcome to Forletta Investigates. Investigative security consultant Larry Forletta is a highly decorated former DEA agent and member of the Maryland State Police. Forletta Investigates aims to provide information on real-life encounters involving law enforcement, drug trafficking, and actual investigations. Listen to the show every Tuesday as we approach topics of crime and other issues affecting our communities with someone who has worked within law enforcement for over 25 years. Here is your host, Larry Forletta. All right. Well, I want to welcome all of you to our show called Forletta Investigates. I am honored and fortunate to have our next guest. Um, our guest was the former regional director in charge uh, for the countries of Mexico and Central America. Uh, welcome, Larry Hollyfield. Thank you, Larry. Larry, as I mentioned as my monologue for all the other agents, the former retired agents, I should say, that we've uh, uh, had on the podcast, uh, I, I believe that you'll agree that the success of DEA and their agents really go unheralded. Yeah, there's no doubt that DEA has made a major impact, not just in the drug world, but in the money laundering world and and also uh, in the, in, in the uh, world of terrorism. DEA is out there in, uh, I believe, something like 88 countries with uh, multiple offices in some of those countries countries for example i had 12 offices in mexico alone and uh so yeah we have uh probably dea has the greatest ability in terms of human our human intelligence collection even the cia was amazed at some of the information we got from humans yeah that's that's an important part and that's probably where we're most successful especially on the international scene is uh, gaining the confidence of the host country and developing the relationships that uh, DEA has has been well known for. So, uh, Larry, you were you started out. You got about thirty. You had thirty seven years in law enforcement. Uh, you started out with St. Louis Police Department, and then you came on with DEA. So, tell us a little bit about your your career. Well, and when I was eighteen years old, I was working in a factory, and I got laid off right after high school and uh you know i was recruited out of high school to uh, become a police cadet for the st louis police department police cadet you can't be a commissioned officer until you have 21 years in in, uh, in age i was recruited as a cadet and police cadets back in those days were required to go to college and you know the police department helped you and uh, uh you know get you through college by financially and and by allowing you to go to school while sometimes uh, changing your working hours around and stuff like that. So I got my education at Maryville University in St. Louis, graduated there in 1977. Started as a police cadet in 1970. Um, I worked in various offices as a police cadet. The idea was to you know, show you what the police department was about. So I worked in places like homicide. I wrote parking tickets. Uh, I, I worked in communications, dispatching via, you know, police cars uh, to various crime scenes. And uh, then in uh, 1973, I got my commission. I worked three years on the patrol. And then in 19, three years later, uh, 1976, I got selected to be a narcotics detective. 
in narcotics. Uh, we, uh, I basically worked for eight years undercover on a Harley Davidson motorcycle, making cases, making buys, uh, doing various uh, work. And, uh, and during that time, I did a lot of work with DEA. And I was kind of interested in 77 after I got my degree and met the requirements, I started applying for DEA. And, you know, it took me uh, seven years, Larry, to get hired. Wow. Wow. Seven years because uh, you know, the DEA kept losing my application. I kept reapplying. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, no, I know it's, it's really weird. Uh, and finally, I got somebody's attention at this, you know, St. Louis DEA office. And uh, a guy I work with a lot, he took took the reins and uh, he pushed my application through and got hired in uh, March of 1984, DEA. My first assignment was uh, New Orleans, which was, uh, I, like to, I like to say in jest, that was my first foreign assignment, New Orleans. And I worked <laughs> there from 84 to 87. Then I got transferred to Guatemala City Country Office. Back in those days, we covered uh, Guatemala, we covered El Salvador, and we covered Belize. So one of my collateral duties was the country of Belize, and the other one was, of course, El Salvador. And that was a time, uh, my time there from 87 to 1992. Uh, if you'll remember, Larry, that was a time when, uh, when the drug trafficking patterns shifted. Uh, before that, a lot of drugs was going, were, were being uh, shipped from Colombia and various other countries up through the Caribbean. Uh, a lot of it was go fast boats. Some of it was airplanes. You know, Pablo Escobar started, you know, this whole notion that you could send a lot of uh, uh, cocaine by air. So they actually, he and uh, Biosteros, uh, I'm trying to remember these names, Biosteros, um, he was from Honduras, I believe, but he started flying loads and they bought their own island. They flew loads into the Caribbean and they, then they flew on into mainly Florida. But when I was in Guatemala, those patterns started shifting as, you know, the mm -hmm. Vice President Bush started this major push against drug trafficking. Um, uh, I guess President Reagan. Uh, paid a lot more attention to drug trafficking and the damage it was doing to the United States. And so they started this major push uh, in Florida and sort of pushed the, and they sort of created a different drug flow. And that uh, drug flow uh, was consistent with where I was at in, uh, in Guatemala, especially mm -hmm. um, air trafficking. Uh, there were, over 200 clandestine airstrips in Guatemala, and they were in very remote places. So it was a smuggler's paradise. You know, you had two oceans. Right. You had, uh, you know, all those clandestine airstrips. You had uh, the, the Colombians had an ability to blend in. Uh, so basically they could operate in Guatemala. They knew the language. Uh, they, they understood, you know, completely how to, bribe uh, officials, police, uh, you know, all the way up to the top, you know, from, mm -hmm. from the president on down could be subject to corruption. And uh, so I was there in Central America uh, during the hot time when, uh, when those drugs, thousands and thousands of kilos were flowing through Central America. 
And, uh, you know, we were catching people right and left, you know, as a policeman, Larry, you know, this shoot, if I, uh, as, as an undercover narcotics detective, if I could buy an ounce of cocaine, uh, man, that was a major, major case. Right. Well, in Guatemala, it was it was like 500 kilos here, 1,200 kilos there. We were seizing airplanes from Colombians like you wouldn't believe it. We had informants uh, all over the place, and uh, I mean, we were just we were supporting other offices uh, who also brought um, informants, including you know U.S. Customs, DEA, and the Occasionally, an FBI uh, agent would have a case down there too. So, anytime they had developed some sort of um, investigation which involved our area, uh, the agents would come down, coordinate with us. We uh, had, you know, tremendous cooperation with the with the Guatemala, with everyone in, in, in all three of those countries, and a cooperation we developed in uh, Guatemala. We, I, I uh, started a task force with uh, what they called the Guardia Hacienda and yeah. the, and the uh, Guatemalan National Police. Police, yeah. yeah. And it was like a Wild West, Larry. I don't even know how to explain this, but every week we were seizing cocaine. Every week we were developing cases for, for our domestic offices from Los Angeles to New York, from Miami to Seattle. We were uh, we were a hot spot because that's the way the drugs were flowing. So people would come down, agents would come down with their cases. Right. We uh, with our cooperation with the Guatemalans, we were allowed to do controlled deliveries. And uh, just to explain to those who don't know what controlled delivery is, we would literally bring it. We would offer uh, undercover uh, uh, transportation from Guatemala to any place you had your dope, where you wanted your dope delivered in the United States, Houston, Tampa, Miami, you, you, you name it. Almost every major office uh, had some kind of informant that they'd captured and the guy flipped. And we could literally bring in a thousand kilos of cocaine. We would store it in the uh, US embassy. We would package it get it ready. We would arrange transportation to Houston, for example, or to Miami. We would take charge of the dope. We charge the, uh, uh, we would charge the Colombians $300,000 up front for the transportation fees on a thousand kilos. So we were seizing their money. They were paying us to arrest them. Basically it was kind of hilarious <laughs> really if you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So they were paying us all these fees and then, once we got the drugs to a place like, say, Houston, uh, we charged them for the delivery fees. So uh, I remember one case, we brought the drugs actually to San Antonio. And, uh, you know, I, we're dealing with some Mexicans. I, I was dealing with some Mexicans and some Colombians undercover. And, uh, you know, these guys were they had to pay me a million dollars for the delivery fee to get it safely into San Antonio. Wow. So our customs gave me, um, U.S. Customs gave me this brand new Mercedes. It was a sedan. It was awesome. And a full tank of gas. And um, the, you know, the delivery was, the pickup for the money uh, was supposed to be in a Walmart parking lot. Okay, so... I go there and I'm alone, but I have surveillance everywhere. You know how the, that works. 
And so here comes these two idiots from Colombia. They've got the suitcase they bought, the cheapest suitcase you could find. There's a million dollars in this suitcase. And people just don't can't imagine how heavy that is. So they're, they're supposed to put it in my car, then I drive away, then I release the cocaine to them. They're wheeling it across the parking lot, and the wheels fell off the, the suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even make this up. No, so you I can't pop, make it up. I popped the trunk, and here's these two Colombians. They're, do, they're using all their might to pick up the suitcase and try to get it into my trunk. And I don't, re- I don't remember exactly how much it weighed, but I can tell you this. They overpaid me by $9,000. So I get the suitcase, I get it in my car, I got a full tank of gas, and you know, I'm not a corrupt person, but you have to wonder. Now, I lost the surveillance on the way back to the DEA office. So I can know this because I have a radio, and they're they're chasing around the Colombians all over the place, and I'm like, hey, who's watching me? Jesus Christ, I got a Mercedes, I got a full tank of gas, everyone's going to think I'm going to head to Mexico if I turn around and steal this money. But no, I know what, I'll just go north. Those kinds of thoughts cross your mind. And that's the temptation of, uh, uh, of course, I didn't do it. Uh, Of course, I went back to the office, counted the money that took about two days, you can imagine it was in all kinds of denominations. But, but, um, you know, those are the kinds of operations we did in, uh, in Guatemala, lots of controlled deliveries. Uh, the president of Guatemala asked us one time, he says, you know, I don't have a presidential airplane here. You know, it's a pretty f- poor country. And he was infatuated with King Airs. So he says, look, the next time you get a King Air, can you do me a favor and just keep the airplane? Don't let them have it back, okay? I said, and we said, why not? So sure enough, we found a $4 million uh, King Air that delivered us, I think it was like 1,200 kilos of cocaine. We take the cocaine, we arrest the pilots, we get the president the airplane, DEA goes through the forfeiture process, mm-hmm. and then they just donate it to, to the president. And, you know, after that, we could do anything in that right. country, Larry. It's just just amazing. Uh, so we had similar experiences in, uh, in, for example, El Salvador. I think the biggest seizure I made there was... Uh, 5,000 kilos that was in a container uh, from a boat. So this is a funny story too. The ambassador of El Salvador was a really, really good guy, super good guy. He supported law enforcement like you wouldn't believe. Anyway, he wants to put on this big show because we arrested a few people, but the 5,000 kilos, he wants to burn it. So I was with one of those guys from Snowcap who was assisting me on the case. You may know him. I was with Dave, Dave Gaddis. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so they piled all this cocaine up in a pile. They've got news, the TV cameras everywhere, and anything like this. And it looks like a big storm's coming in. And they're pouring kerosene on the, on the cocaine. So I look at Dave, I go, Dave, this is not going to be good because they put the cocaine too close to all these, uh, you know, electric lines, you know, uh, and, and all this other stuff. And, and Dave goes, well, it doesn't matter. It's going to rain. It's not going to burn. I go, oh, no, no. It's going to burn for two days, Dave. You watch. And he, we bet dinner that night. I, I said, 
that rain's not going to stop this cocaine from burning. And I'll bet you dinner. He says, okay, well, let's bet. So uh, sure enough, they start, they light the cocaine. The ambassador throws a flare on it. And man, it was like a giant bonfire. Cocaine is very uh, flammable. Sure. You know? With so all the chemicals. It's, <laughs> yes, it's burning and it's burning. And it burned the pole down. It you know, snapped the electric wires because they had it too close to that. And sure enough, here comes the rain, and it just keeps burning and burning. So, you know, I won a free dinner, plus we had a good laugh and, uh, you know, had some a little bit of success there. I could go on and on with these kinds of stories, but, you know, it, it's sure. just kind of, kind of funny. Well, well, let me ask you a little bit about Guatemala. Uh, I know Guatemala was going through a civil war. Uh, was that about the time when you were there? Yes, I was there during the civil war. Um, that war... Uh, didn't really affect our abilities because it was kind of a, a war being fought in little one little village after another. So the the army, the Guatemalan army, did a pretty good job of keeping that. I mean, it, uh, it was a civil war. So these uh, sure uh, uh, surgeons, they weren't coming into the city, and they weren't uh, you know creating havoc in the city. Most of that stuff was fought outside of Guatemala City. Right. What, we had to be careful of is, you know, a lot of the uh, control deliveries we did were, you know, six hour drive from Guatemala City. So, right. uh, you know, we had vehicles that could conceal the cocaine. Uh, and, uh, you know, the danger we had, what I always said was, look, you know, get this, get this cocaine off these airplanes. Let's hurry up. Let's get out of here. Right. Because the fear I had was that the, uh, if the insurgents got a hold of the cocaine, I mean, that would help finance the war for them. Sure. And, you know, plus they would have killed us all probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> there is that, you know, so we would get the cocaine, put it in our vehicles and uh, the army would semi escort us in a very, a very undercover fashion. We didn't want to bring attention on ourselves. So we would take the main roads and shoot. I remember one time we, we had probably uh 5,000 kilos, and we got the dope in a place called Retaleo, and we're driving, and we go through a town, and they're having this major parade, and I mean, there's like thousands of people, you know, going right past them, we're, we're there in our vehicles with uh, with all this cocaine, and they haven't got a clue, they yeah. don't have a clue what, what we're doing, so um, it was, it was, uh, it was good, and we, we also had a lot of success at sea, we got a lot of go-fast boats, uh, once we got a, uh, a beautiful sailboat. This was this case out of Seattle. And we controlled, delivered the cocaine onto this sailboat, which was, you know, a teak sailboat. I mean, it was a very nice one. Two Americans, a couple of idiots. Uh, they were OCDF cases out of Seattle. So we let them go out to sea. And, and uh, we were going to make the seizure out to sea to protect the informants and all this other kind of stuff. And so... The Guatemala Navy. I'm on a 90-foot uh, Navy ship from Guatemala. They lost the sailboat. Oh. It took us a, a day to find them again. We finally found them in international waters, seized the boat, brought the boat back. It was 900 kilos. And uh, I tried to tell the guys, uh, the Americans, say, listen, why don't you guys cooperate, you know? Just cooperate. No, they told me, you know, all kinds of uh, – 
uh, names they called me and I said all right well you know I guess you're going to Guatemala prison then and sure enough uh, one of them got stabbed within like 10 days of being in prison the prisoners killed him and naturally the uh, the second American was was calling us hey please come to the prison I'll tell you anything you want to know <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> Whatever. you know yeah so, I had uh, I had a first experience with uh, the Guatemalan uh, prison we uh we got our fugitive down there and uh, he ends up, you know, sitting in, in jail for a while and got a bacteria infection and, and uh, eventually died. So uh, I know how serious it is in Guatemala for sure. Oh, well, one thing I will tell anybody, you do not want to go to prison in Central America. Yeah. Shoot. I used to interview prisoners like in Belize and, you know, the humidity and the heat there. They, right. they got a shower from a fire hose. The guy, the, the cops would just go <laughs> blow them all down with a fire hose. That was their shower of the day. Yeah, it's pretty right. nasty. Pretty nasty. So, as you progress through your career, Larry, uh, I wanted to mention that uh, you uh, you really moved up uh, in in the promotion area of DEA. You became a senior uh, executive service, uh, and uh, at one point you were assigned or in charge of uh, Mexico City. And uh, obviously, uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, that as that position that you held there, that you report directly to the U.S. ambassador. And uh, there were other agencies that also participated in Mexico City, such as ICE and the FBI. And uh, I, I also wanted to mention that you got numerous awards from DEA, and the prestigious Warren Medal from the CIA. And uh, how were the relationships with uh, those agencies, but particularly the CIA, because um, some agents uh, that I've talked to in the past mentioned that uh, in, in certain circumstances, uh, there was some interference there. Well, I <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Uh, in Guatemala, we had a good relationship with the CIA. As you mentioned before, there was a there was a major civil war going on there, and also a major, you know, the, the Iran, uh, the Contra, the Contra war was going on, and El Salvador was mm -hmm. a big player in that. Right. So we had a lot of uh, interaction with the CIA. For the most part, they stayed out of our business um, in those countries. Because they had plenty to do themselves, and they had real, they had uh, reinforcements. They had a big office in both those countries. Let's put it that way. And um, so I had a pretty good relationship with them. Uh, naturally, you have to understand. You can, agents get their feelings hurt when they're when they're told you can, we can't show you this cable, we can't tell you about this or that because of you know that's just part of their secret culture of the CIA. Right. We really didn't need their support. We were making cases left and right all over the place. And, uh, you know, and they were busy. So uh, they became some good friends, honestly. They, you know, those were small embassies. Guatemala was small and Salvador at the time was smaller. So mm -hmm. we developed uh, a lot of good relationships. We'd have barbecues with these guys and everything else. And, uh, you know, uh, so I I have to say my experience with the CIA was was pretty good. What was weird is the way they talked about the FBI. 
They did not. They were in direct competition with the FBI. Mm -hmm. uh, they, uh, they had a lot of, a lot of hard feelings uh, uh, with each other. Right. Uh, just because of their, you know, that was, that was, that was their, uh, what they were supposed to do. CIA domestic terrorism. And uh, I'm sorry, FBI was, you know, doing all this domestic terrorism and the CIA, all the international information that they developed. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when actually in one part of my career, you know, when I was a GS 14, uh, the CIA and DEA merged uh, on an operation. And uh, I, uh, I think they named it like cr the cross fertilization operation, wherein uh, three DEA GS 14s were sent to foreign countries. Uh, I, I volunteered for that job. Uh, and, and a lot of people didn't want to do it because, you know, the vetting process was, 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 uh, you know, it could make someone nervous because you had to take a polygraph and they looked into your, and they did a deep dive again on your background and, uh, psychological testing. And then you had to pass their course, uh, which was like a 12 week course, if I remember right. So anyway, I, I did it, and, and people were telling me, don't do it. I said, well, look, I want to go back overseas, and this job I'm asking for is in Bogota. So I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. So uh, I did it. Uh, I passed a polygraph on the first try, and I didn't even really study. And, uh, <laughs> and there were some DEA agents that had to take that test like four or five times. But I passed it on the first try, luckily. <laughs> Uh, probably because I have no conscience and I can't remember anything. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, and the school, the three of us who were put in school with the uh, other CIA people, it was so easy, Larry, compared to DEA Academy or the police academy. I mean, um, they taught you a lot about their culture and the way they do things and, you know, the way they develop information. And I really shouldn't talk about that too much, but but I, sure. I can tell you, it was after so many years in law enforcement, I thought, wow, this is refreshing. This is learning something new. And uh, again, I developed better relationships with these folks. And what was really awesome, my boss, uh, I was reporting to the station there, and uh, the boss I had was a guy I worked with in Guatemala. And so we, I automatically... Uh, you know, fit right in. And he made sure that everybody understood, <laughs> don't mess with Larry. And, uh, and, uh, you know, whatever he wants, give it to him. So, <clears throat> and, and that program worked out very good. Uh, three, three people from the CIA were sitting in DEA offices and three DEA uh, supervisors were in offices in uh, uh, Peru, Colombia, and Bolivia. So the three hotspots, that's where mm -hmm. the, the program uh, focused. And uh, it was kind of interesting to learn how they do things. And we were able to take that otherwise useless intelligence the CIA was developing and pass a lot of more information onto the DEA offices so that they were able to, you know, do operations, uh, developed informants for the offices that, that you know, and we actually, for the first time, shared informants, uh, human human informants with uh, 
with the DEA. And so after a couple of years of that, I got uh, a temporary promotion and went down as the assistant country attache, which is a GS-15 position in Bogota. Mm -hmm. And it really paid off for me. It really helped ignite my career. Uh, so after a year as a, GS, a temporary GS-15, you know, Mike Horn, who was in charge of international operations at the time, he says, hey, come to headquarters. I'll give you a permanent promotion. And we have this other program. It's, uh, I want you to run it. So I did. And it, and it, would, it, it would involve the intel community and 18 different organizations within the government. Mm-hmm. And I'd be the co-chair of what's known as the, Liddy, the Linear Committee. Uh, it was co-chaired by DEA and CIA. And again, I didn't have to do any more vetting because I already had the, all the vetting done for this other job I had. Sure. And so I had a good experience with that as well. Uh, on the bad side, when the CIA would put their nose into operations overseas, I have to tell you, man, they had no idea about how to collect evidence and how to present uh i mean they couldn't they 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 just can't they they can't by their own uh rules uh collect evidence and do what we did and sometimes they did things that they thought were the greatest thing since sliced bread and it would destroy an investigation mm-hmm. uh, make it impossible to bring a case for prosecution in the united states and Larry, you know this, uh, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people listening do as well. If you're in an overseas assignment in DEA because of the terrible justice systems throughout Latin America, especially, um, our purpose was to develop evidence and intelligence that would support DEA domestic operations and uh, prosecutions seizures, prosecutions, operations. And that's what people are, that's why DEA has so many people overseas. And a lot of the cases made in New York, Miami, Los Angeles, uh, or other, other DEA domestic offices are because of the tremendous support they get from overseas operations, international operations. So, um, I mean, do yourself, you know, this, you went down to Guatemala to, 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 uh, get a prisoner how many other agencies could have gotten given you that access unfortunately your guy died but you know right um, uh, we could do things like renditions we could do things uh, because of our contacts in right. Latin America it's who you know uh, it really is a lot about who you know mm-hmm. and, and and it's not um, it's not so much about the bureaucracies they can in Latin America, if people know and trust you and you don't, you know, you right. can get a lot of things done, a lot right. of things. Right. Yes. Well, I, I do know that uh, I, I met a gentleman down there, Major. His name was Major Carillas, and uh, I we worked with him along with uh, the agents in, in Guatemala, and uh, he was great, and so were his men uh, that took the risk to uh, capture this fugitive. So, Larry, let's go back to your time in uh, in Mexico City, and what some of the challenges there when you were in charge. All right. So, probably one of the first things on my agenda, having worked in California 
was this whole methamphetamine uh, issue. The, the Mexicans were in complete denial that there was any kind of uh, methamphetamine labs uh, in, in Mexico. Of course, you know, the biggest labs uh, we were seizing in DEA were all throughout California back in those days. And uh, initially, a lot of the chemicals are medicines, cold medicines uh, that were used in the processing of methamphetamine were coming from Canada. And, and so the Canadians started paying attention and they kind of cut off all the uh, precursor chemicals and stuff that uh, were being used in California. So naturally, I mean, um, when you think about this and you're a Mexican drug trafficking organizations, believe me, they are some of the, uh, they're probably the most dangerous, even more so than Colombians. Uh, after Pablo Escobar, but the Mexican drug trafficking organizations, they're huge in numbers, they're treacherous, you know, they'll cut your head off on, on a video camera if you cross them. And, you know, they're not only involved in drug trafficking, but they're big, big time extortionists and everything else. So <clears throat> the um, focus I placed on methamphetamine led me to create a, um, a liaison with uh, DEA people from Washington, D.C. in the diversion, uh, DOJ attorneys, uh, the U.S. military, the Mexican military, the Mexican uh, Department of Justice, and we had a deputy uh, uh, attorney general assigned. And I would host these meetings quarterly to, to discuss the issues we were seeing in our DEA offices throughout Mexico and explain the situation of how methamphetamine was just going crazy in the United States, from mom and pop labs in Missouri to these big uh, super labs, we used to call them. And all our intelligence uh, from my offices throughout Mexico was, hey, there are some huge methamphetamine labs uh, all over the place. So when we first approached this with the um, Attorney General's Office of Mexico, they go, we don't have any methamphetamine labs. We go, what? How can that be? We just see, you know, my guys in Jalisco just sees the lab, and, you know, it was a super huge methamphetamine lab. And they're in Michoacan. They're all over Mexico, especially in the western states of Mexico. Uh, and what we learned was, hey, that nobody, these, these labs are being taken down by state police in conjunction with DEA. And uh, they were being taken down by municipal police. And uh, they were not being reported to the Justice Department of Mexico. So they basically said that we don't have any labs. And we were saying, that's weird, because look, uh, show them on a map. There's five labs seized this month you know, in yeah. your country. You don't know about it. So I don't know if you remember, uh, Larry, but back in those days, labs, uh, you had, if you seized any kind of lab, uh, drug lab, you reported that to Epic. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so there was a form, you you know, like a cable you would produce or something. Right. You know, it's like uh, fill in the blanks and, and, and that would be our method of tracking uh, labs. So I took uh, the deputy attorney general and a couple other guys from Mexico up to see Epic. 
and uh, showed them how we collected the information. Uh, they liked it and they started imposing requirements on the state police and prosecutors that, that they had to start reporting this. And obviously, uh, they in Mexico also had um, very loose laws in terms of medicine, particularly cough medicine. Right. And there are a lot of uh, drug companies in Mexico, big international companies like Bayer, and uh, almost anybody you can imagine, they have, uh, if you're in a dr drug manufacturing business, you're in Mexico because you right. know, it's 130 million people. It's a big market. Right. And so uh, we turned the attention to having better controls on the legal drugs, like the cough medicines uh, and the chemicals coming into Mexico. They changed some of their laws. And, you know, suddenly, if you wanted to buy uh, cough medicine, you couldn't just go in there and buy a shelf full of it so you could take it to a lab and make, uh, make, make your meth. Uh, you had to go through the pharmacist, and, the, and that stuff was kept behind the counter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we made seizures in Mexico, we actually, you know, we we, we, we showed the Mexicans the safest way to approach labs, you know, how, that, how explosive they can be. Sure. We gave them a lot of training uh, in reporting and safety and, and how you handle these dangerous chemicals. And, um, and in, turn, in, in return for that, they gave us, you know, access to their evidence. So uh, right. a lot of cases were being supported, uh, you know, through our offices in Mexico which is the reason we're there to begin with. So um, right. I'm really proud of that. I, I got a, a really nice award, uh, you know, uh, from, well, uh, uh, there's a um, nationwide, U.S. nationwide, back at the time, there was a nationwide um, uh, focus where a former U.S. attorney uh, out of San Diego um, and, and some former DEA agents and current DEA agents were assigned to this thing called the National Methamphetamine uh, Chemical Initiatives. They, they, they gave me a nice uh, award uh, for the efforts we put forth in uh, you know, slowing down that methamphetamine out of Mexico. So right. I won't say stopped it because you can't stop it. Well, let me ask you this, Larry. Let's go back just a little bit about EPIC. And just explain to what EPIC means and what it really is. It's the El Paso Intelligence Center, EPIC, mm -hmm. and uh, it is a it's it's, it's kind of like um, an intelligence center that brings together uh, several agencies, uh, federal law enforcement. So let's just say you're a, a state trooper in Pennsylvania, your home state, right? And uh, you're working the highways, and you stop a car. Uh, maybe there's a couple of suspicious people in the car. You stop the car, and uh, you run the names. You run the uh, plate. Well, you know the state troopers could go right to Epic and say, "Hey, do you guys have any information about these two people or this car?" Mm -hmm. And uh, they would get an instant check uh, by the intel analysts there in EPIC 
uh, which would help them develop probable cause and, 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 and stuff like that. So that was one function. It was also the state troopers and the uh, local police uh, were able to report uh, to Epic seizures they made, like money or drugs. And, you know, uh, I forgot the name of the operation right now. Maybe you can remember it, but it was a big time thing for DEA. Uh, we, we, we sent uh, trainers all throughout the states to teach the troopers and the locals mm-hmm. how to collect inf- information on drug traffickers running up and down the highway. O- Operation Pipeline. 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 Pipe, yeah, Pipeline. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so we put a lot of effort into that. And you know what? It paid off big, big dividends. Right. In terms of successful prosecutions, seizures, and coordination. I mean, right. I mean, um, how can I explain this? You're a trooper in Pennsylvania. You stop a car, and there's two, let's just say two Mexicans, for lack of a better term, uh, two suspicious people. They're Mexican. They can't speak English. They don't know what they're doing. And they tell you, okay. Look in my trunk. I give you a free pass. Go ahead. Look in my trunk. I, I don't need a search. You don't need a search warrant. I have nothing to hide. Pop the trunk and there's a half a million dollars in there. So the troopers would first call they make is DEA. They don't call the FBI. They don't call customs. They call DEA. DEA agents come out, help them, assist them in their investigation. Right. Uh, the two mopes in the car go, I don't know where that money came from. Good. We'll just take the money then, you know, give them a little receipt for their money. And uh, the next step is, is forfeiture, right? So within right. 90, that money's forfeited and a great deal of that money. I mean, I think DEA charged a processing fee because, you know, we had to pay to sure. go through that administrative process, uh, maybe 10%. I don't remember the percentage. There was a percentage, but DEA would take maybe 10% of the $500,000, forfeit the rest of that money, and give it right back to the Pennsylvania State Police on the condition they would use that money to enhance law enforcement efforts uh, to combat drug trafficking. Sure. So what does that mean? They could buy radios. They could buy cars. They could... They could uh, you know, pay bonuses. I mean, for people who work, work drug cases... Um, you know, it's uh, and and that was one of DEA's biggest uh, tool in terms of cooperation. Yep, yes. my opinion. I, yeah, I, I, ran, I agree. I ran a task force in Oakland. We had thirty uh, thirty uh, people in it, and uh, that that became the DEA office in in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was there were people there from the Oakland PD, Berkeley. Uh, you know, being. Uh, Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement, BNE, uh, state state narcotics officers, and one of the biggest things, one of the biggest selling points for me running that office was, uh, hey, we're going to share, we're going to share everything we get with you guys in a proportion, everything that's forfeited, shared proportionately, with, depending on your support with manpower to our operation here. Sure, it was it was phenomenal. Yeah, but, you know, you, you know. A lot of people don't realize this either. Uh, DEA consistently seized more money than their budget that was forfeited into the United States Treasury. Right. So people are like, wow, these DEA guys, I mean, we don't need them. You know, they're expensive. And then someone come on, man. We seize more and forfeit more than our budget. So yeah. uh, 
you know, uh, a lot of the drug money that's, you know, uh, approved by Congress ends up with the military. You know, you know that as well. They get way more money than DEA. Sure. Know? Yeah. So, um, you know, people don't realize that either. A lot of that uh, drug money they see on TV that's being allocated for drug enforcement is actually going to the U.S. military. Well, Larry, going back to the challenges that you had in, in, in Mexico City with the methamphetamine problem, and, you know, there were many issues in Mexico, and I, and I know that you mentioned that you brought uh, some officials from Mexico to Epic to see how the operations were. So I know there was always some issues about sharing intelligence or information uh, within the Mexican government because of the corruption. So how did you deal with that? Uh, we formed vetted units and basically uh, we, we, we basically did not, we did not deal with old time Mexican cops. I mean, they, they, it was, you know, most of them, if not all of them, I won't say everybody's corrupt, but in, in that culture, uh, they might look at corruption a little bit differently than we do in the United States. Uh, right. in fact, do. But so what we did, we formed what we call vetted units, uh, small intelligence units. Uh, these units could collect intelligence and I won't go into how they did it. They side by side with DEA agents throughout the country. This is just Mexico. I had these vetted units in every one of my countries because I really, really believed in the system. And so we would pick young, uh, young uh, national policemen right out of the academy who hadn't had a chance to make one arrest, not in, not any arrest. We would take these young guys and we would train them on intel collection. Uh, like I said, they would liaison with our agents and they would collect, they would do nothing but collect intelligence. Uh -huh. That intelligence was filtered uh, into Mexico City in, 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 in an encrypted way. Uh, these guys had no interaction with operational, uh, with operations. So they basically were in an island with a DEA agent shielded from the operators uh, of the national police, providing intelligence that would lead to an operation. But the operations themselves were carried out by other vetted units throughout the country, mm -hmm. uh, Mexican national police and so forth. And those, uh, those guys were always separated. So we felt like, I mean, I believe strongly that as long as these guys didn't get mixed up in a seizure or get mixed up in uh, a money grab or mm -hmm. anything like that, they, uh, they were pretty protected. We paid them a little extra salary, of course, uh, for working. Right. And, um, you know, they just didn't have any opportunities. Think about this, Larry. They, they didn't have an opportunity to knock down a door, find a million dollars and put anything in their pockets because they didn't do that. All they did was collect the uh, evidence. And then the problems would, would come out when you, you started dealing with corrupt prosecutors. Um, even some of our vetted guys who were on the operational side uh, 
you know, we later find out they're corrupt. We'd have to filter them out. We'd take them out of the program. Um, it's a complicated thing. They, we think they get fired. And next thing you know, we see them working for the state police somewhere. Right. Saying, and, uh, you know, it's just a way of life corruption down there. So we did what we could do to avoid the corruption as much as possible. But, uh, you know, we, we, uh, uh, that that's that's basically how we dealt with it through through vetted units and protecting protecting sensitive intelligence and mm-hmm. keeping guys away from operations so that they did they, they weren't tempted to, to be corrupt uh, we provided them with vehicles we gave them the best equipment um, and you know the United States government I'm talking about mainly through DEA right and so they had something to be proud of and of course they're right out of they're right out of college so they're 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 still naive enough to think that um you know what they were doing was important and it was important i shouldn't sure. just say yeah but they hadn't had a exposure to corruption you know uh and th- and that's what we felt would keep right. everything so that's how we did it well on the operational side as i understand it that the mexican marines were probably the most trusted uh, entities within Mexico. Yeah, um, the Marine, uh, the Navy, the Navy came in right about the time I was leaving because of the corruption in the Army. And uh, there was a, uh, there was a lot of uh, issues with the military, for example, you know, everyone knows the famous Chapo Guzman. And we had a, we were working with a vetted unit from the army who I believe was uh, being managed by someone that I trusted, someone that I thought was really uh, above board, above, above approach. Mm-hmm. Um, here's, here's an issue. Let, let, let's just say, here's an example. Develop, we develop information. Chapo Guzman is hiding in the mountains of Durango. We actually know where he's at. Mm-hmm. The only way you can get there quickly is by helicopter. So we'd send the, the, the these army guys, which were also a special vetted unit. You know, I think I just explained that vetted process. But we'd send these army guys to go try to catch him. And they were honest. So they, they these guys would go to an army base. They had to get the helicopters. As soon as the helicopters started, uh, they started the engines, phone calls from the army base are going into the chopper. We know this. Mm-hmm. And he's being warned, hey, we don't know why, but these guys from Mexico City just showed up here and they just commandeered two helicopters and the helicopters just started. You might want to hide. And sure enough, uh, they would... The, the vetted unit would get into helicopters, respond. They'd try to cover all the, um, uh, all the um, ex- logical exits from this spot with mm-hmm. other military. Uh, and before our guys would arrive, and on this particular occasion, they got, they got to this location in the mountains of Durango, and, you know, it's like you see in the movies. The food was hot, you know, maybe the cigars. Right. That, I don't know, but it was that kind of situation. Uh, Chapo escaped 
and minutes before they got there, we later find out that the corrupt army side of the army house, the local guys from that area, they assisted him in his in his escape. And I mean, it's frustrating, you know, right. very yep. frustrating to deal with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you know we've tr- we we tried all kinds of different ways, and we were very successful catching a lot of big drug traffickers during my four years in Mexico. Mm-hmm. I mean, the big the biggest targets, we caught a lot of them. We took down mm-hmm. the uh, Ariano Felix organization out of Tijuana. We took down the uh, golf cartel. We took down uh, several uh, car- big cartels out of uh, Guadalajara and uh, different places. And, and you know we were we were catching a lot of these guys, but they were protected, especially the Sinaloa cartel, and uh, it, it's just unbelievable the corruption. And and some of it you you have to understand. If you're in the army and you're protect and you're in an area where somebody like Chapo Guzman, a ruthless uh, you know drug trafficker, uh, lives, and he says, okay, you know you can either you can either work with me or die. And if you work with them, you get a little bonus every month, you know? <laughs> so, sure. Yeah. So I do. I mean, it was the same thing in Colombia when I worked there. I mean, right. Um, you know, you either cooperated or you died. Well, now um, let's go to full circle up to the, I guess, the current time that's going on with Mexico now. Uh, I know that. Uh, I guess a controversial issue came up when uh, DEA arrested the defense minister, Salvador Sinfuegos, in, in L.A., and then he was subsequently released uh, through the Attorney General Barr, returned back to Mexico, and uh, no charges were filed, and, and now there's a uh, issue trying to make DEA look like the bad guys, and they're now... Uh, reducing the number of agents in, in Mexico City. Well, they may be and they may not be uh, reducing the number. That's that's still up for grabs, I think. But uh, Cienfuegos, uh, you know, he was a, a old time general. Uh, you know, very high ranking, made uh, Minister of Defense uh, for the current president, and. Yeah. Uh, evidence works in a different way in the United States than it does in Mexico. Okay? Sure. As a, we have that whole powerful uh, law enforcement tool called conspiracy. Right. And, um, you know, my personal opinion is DEA had sufficient evidence to successfully prosecute this guy. And what the Mexicans probably didn't get access to were all the human sources who were willing to testify against them. I sure. mean, think, think about who was in prison right now. Chapo's mm-hmm. uh, in prison. He's there for life. He knows that he can have a good life or a bad life, or he can cooperate, or he doesn't have to cooperate. Do you think Chapo Guzman may have said a few things about seeing Fuego? Wow. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he did. <laughs> and then there's this guy, Hanaro Garcia Luna, who was a the previous minister of security. What does that mean? That means he ran all the federal police agencies. He had a huge intelligence center. He collected dirt. He was like the J. Edgar Hoover of Mexico. Let's put it this way. Right. 
about he's in jail now in, in New York. Sure. Charged oh New York, and uh, where was where were they going to charge Cienfuegos? Hmm. They had a lot of evidence on him in New York. So I wonder if these top officials uh, weren't cooperating. That makes one think about that, right? Now, right. Of course, DEA is not going to turn that over to the Mexicans. Sure. But, you know, one plus one is two, Larry. Yeah. And and so I think the case on Cienfuegos was enough to convict him. Yeah, I agree. Made this deal. Uh, was a political decision. Yes, as it usually is uh, in, in a lot of circumstances. So, Larry, um, as we begin to, to close our interview with you, um, I know that after uh, you left DEA, um, you started your own investigation business in South Florida. So tell us a little bit about your business and what you do. Okay, well, it's called Corporate Integrity Services. And... Uh, my partner, Don Zell, and I decided, when I retired, I went to work for a law firm called Hutton and Williams down in Miami. It's a famous international law firm. And I was an in-house investigator for them. And uh, at, a, at a point, uh, I mean, Don Zell was actually my boss at this uh, law firm. And he, he's a former DEA agent, you know, maybe a few years older than me. But at the, at, um, at the beginning, we were in-house investigators for this international law firm. And at some point we decided, hey, you know what? Maybe we don't want to come into this luxurious office space in Miami. Maybe we want to just do something on our own and be our own bosses. And right. have a report to uh, the, the law firm. And the law firm was very good to, I mean, they gave me a great salary and a lot of good benefits. But, you know, uh, I wanted to be my own boss and so did Don Zell. And so we created this company and uh, the law firm supported us by still giving us business. And that led to more business and more business. And, and uh, so we've been quite successful. And what we do is we investigate uh, uh, any, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a license and bonded and, you know, mm -hmm. insurance. and, uh, we do investigations for a number of clients. We have some pretty good clients. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we haven't really had too many problems, um, you know, making money on our right. own. Right. But of course, enough to support ourselves. We get our retirements and everything else. From the sure. <clears throat> and uh, so, you know, we've been very successful uh, with, with a lot of law firms now throughout the country. Uh, we do work for other big investigative um, companies, you know, that like Kroll and, uh, you know, V2 and a whole bunch of others, FTI. Uh, you know, if they need something that we have a particular uh, uh, access to, like Mexico or Colombia or, right. or somewhere else uh, throughout the world, uh, these big companies might come to us and say, hey, well, we got this particular problem. Can you investigate it? And sure enough, we right. we. we out of business that way right so and we well, do investigations private investigations right so i can tell our listeners that uh you and i actually did some work together and that's how we met uh you came to pennsylvania we helped you out and then i uh uh had had a good time in south florida with you and don and and, and the other guys uh involving the uh the major league baseball scandal which was uh you know a great case but Larry, um, I want to thank you for taking your time to be on our podcast. 
Uh, and uh, to our listeners, I highly recommend uh, Larry and his investigative group in the Miami, Florida area and, and anything you need there. Larry, uh, give us your uh, your website. Uh, it's corporateintegrityservices.com. Okay. Well, Larry, listen, thanks again. It was great talking to you, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Okay, Larry, take care. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.